Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The one place to be, of course, for common sense, for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We awake uh, on the second day of our working week, for most people anyway, uh, in the beginning of the brand new year 2023. However, it would appear, and we will be talking about this later on in the show, uh, that Tuesday to Thursday is in fact the new working week. So Monday was a bank holiday, but don't worry because next week it'll be the same. Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday seems to be the time that we all now go to work properly Monday and Friday nobody bothers now is there any coincidence that the economy is not firing on all cylinders is there any coincidence that you can't get anything done is there any coincidence that people are constantly complaining that Britain is broken it's not broken it's just slowing down and it's just not working as hard as it should do I know this has become a very regular refrain of mine but I'm sorry to have to say that there is no evidence yet that the brand new year has changed anything in terms of people's work ethic I've had this from Helen I'm going to kick it off straight away because this is what's going on inside of the NHS which is apparently on its knees right my son has just had a PIP medical assessment over the phone how can they possibly do that efficiently uh, openly she said she was at home with coffee waiting to take the dog for a walk after the postman had been if you ever try to phone any government department you wait on the phone up to an hour well, Helen, you're absolutely right. Thank you for kicking off the show today. Thank you for letting us know uh, what your own situation is, because I think we all have a story like that. Something else we all have a story like, I hope not too many of you do, though, uh, is on the front pages of all the papers this morning, gangs threat to stab Olympic star in front of his children. This is the terrible ordeal suffered by Mark Cavendish, the Olympic cyclist, and his wife, Peter, uh, who has had their house broken into uh, by a gang of burglars who stole £700,000 worth of watch and of course, as uh, Mark Cavendish tried uh, to hide their three-year-old son under the duvet, a court hears that basically the robbers didn't care. The robbers said they would stab the boy uh, no matter what in front of his father or stab the father in front of his son. I mean, it's just is horrendous what's happening out there in the big wide world of crime in this country. Criminals now don't seem to have any code of honour, any code of practice. They will do whatever they want to do uh, with brutality and with death as well. So what are we going to do to fix that problem? Uh, I hand you over to the police for that, but the police unfortunately still seem quite hidebound about how they're going to go about all sorts of things. We're going to talk as well uh, to Peter Blexley about that. We're going to talk, of course, um, about the nighttime economy. We're going to talk about the damage that the rail strikes are doing to that economy. We're going to talk to Nick Freeman, Mr. Loophole. He's got some uh, new instructions for the new year for all you drivers out there. Some new year resolutions, in fact. Austin Williams is going to join us to talk a bit about the COVID testing that's going on. We will have talk about the masks as well, because that is absolutely incredible. And also education, education, education. That used to be the mantra of Tony Blair. Rishi Sunak apparently now wants everybody to stay at school until they're 18 years of age, learning more and more about maths. Well, I suppose on the bright side, what it means is you won't need a calculator to add up how much worse off you were than last year. But we shall see. Coming up, uh, I'm very, very pleased to say uh, that we've got Stuart Jackson with us, who hasn't spoken to us for quite some time. He used to be a regular on this show. Uh, he was, of course, not made into Lord Stuart uh, Jackson of Peterborough uh, in the recent uh, honours list. So uh, Lord Jackson joins us very shortly. We want to hear from you, of course, as well. 03444991000. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV.
Have no fear, uh, we are here. And that is always going to be the mantra for you because this is the one place where we care what you think and where we augment and uh, amplify what you think and make sure that everybody else knows what it is that you want us to tell them, particularly those people uh, who sit in both Houses of Lords and the Commons. Rishi Sunak will be making a speech later on this afternoon. Much of it will focus on education. We've already had it trailed quite a bit in the papers this morning. He basically wants all children to learn more math skills until the age of 18, which I think may be an honourable venture, but whether it's any good or not, we shall see. Let's say a very good morning and a happy new year uh, to Lord Jackson of Peterborough. Stuart, nice to see you. Great to be back, Mike, on the Independent Republic. Yes, good to see that we are still here, going from strength to strength. Uh, congratulations on your on your recent honour. Uh, I'm sure you'll be one of the very hard-working peers in the House of Lords, of which there are many. Um, tell us, first of all, what you make of the state of play, because I noticed you retweeted yesterday uh, the piece by Ian Duncan Smith about why the Conservative Party needs to kind of shore itself up, uh, dust itself down and get out there uh, and try and predict and present themselves as the next government, as well as the one currently. Yeah, you're quite right. I think at the moment, a lot of natural Conservative voters and certainly party members are, are pretty uh, down in the, in the mouth about the party's prospects mm. for the next general election. And let's be realistic. I mean, Keir Starmer is not Tony Blair. He's not a guy that's um, naturally charismatic. He's not a natural born leader. And more importantly, I think the Labour Party don't really have any formed policies. Um, their view is, you know, just uh, attack the Conservatives consistently and say time for a change and they'll win the election. I think what Rishi Sunak has to do is draw a line under the last 18 months of fractures infighting in the Conservatives. Um, and actually start fighting back against the Labour Party and the opposition because a lot of uh, ministers seem to be scared of their own shadows. They're afraid of articulating core Conservative values. I think the important thing that Sunak needs to do as Prime Minister today in his key keynote speech is to tell a story, have an optimistic, forward-looking narrative. And that's what Boris Johnson was so good at. He, he was very much banging the drum about how Britain could and should be a great country. Mm. And we've not seen that under the Sunak administration. And frankly, my view is steady as she goes, so-called grown-ups back in charge is not going to cut it. And it's certainly not going to win the election for the Conservative Party. No, because it's not inspirational, is it? I mean, I watched and we played it out yesterday, his actual you know New Year message. And there was nothing wrong with what he was saying. But it was kind of the way it was presented. As you say, Stuart, it's kind of, you know, it's a bit like the management uh, have brought some consultants in that nobody really likes and nobody really wants. And they're going to tell you how to run your business, even though you've been running it for the best part of the last 30 years. You know, and he doesn't inspire, does he? That's the problem. The difficulty is, of course, we've got the overhang of Brexit, which, you know, I supported Brexit. I think Brexit in the long term, in the medium term, will be a success for this country as an independent, sovereign nation, self-governing democracy. Uh, he's had COVID, which is has been the ma biggest, uh, most massive hit on the economy since the war. And of course, the fallout from the Ukraine war, the Russian-Ukraine war, which has had such a big impact on inflation and supply chains. So anyone would have struggled in that position. But I think people can understand that. They cut you some slack for that. But they, they're they not stupid. They look at an audit of the Conservative government and they think to themselves, look, you've had 12 years. Immigration, where have you got to? School standards, where have you got to? The NHS, inflation, 
pensions, social care. You know, the list is uh, is endless, frankly, or feels endless. Mm. I think what he has to do is get some wins. And I'm disappointed. You mentioned the maths announcement. Yeah. It's a good announcement of itself, and who's going to disagree that we, our kids should, and young people should be more numerate? But why is it being left to after the next general election? Yeah. Well, that's, that's one question, but also, you know, there are plenty of problems within our education system, Stuart, which won't be fixed by telling people they have to study maths till they're 18. Why won't they study English till they're 18? Why not study other things until they're 18? Why not introduce a new subject, which is, you know, the real world, and actually get teachers teaching kids how to deal with money problems, how to deal with loan sharks, how to understand the way the money markets work, that kind of thing, which would be much more useful, it seems to me, because I know just from my personal experience of dealing with my own kids' maths homework, you know, by the time they were doing GCSE maths, I was lost and I'm quite good at it. You know, I had no idea what they were doing. So I don't know what the hell they're going to be studying up to 18, you know? Well, I do believe in, in education being transformative and i agree with you that financial education is important and you know we're probably never gonna you and i might we were brought up with long division yeah. trigonometry and geometry we're never going to use that but the point being that this this feels a bit late in the day i think there has to be a coherent education narrative i've i've always taken the view sack bad teachers and pay good teachers a huge amount of money because yeah. they do have this catalytic transformal transformational effect on young people but I, i'm not sure we're we're there i mean we have made good progress and there was good progress in the cameron years certainly but i, I think we need to refocus but at the moment i i think obviously the two priorities for this government are the nhs and immigration and if they can get those right and get in the right direction um they're the, the government's poll rating will recover yeah i mean the problem with immigration is it seems to be a completely insoluble problem and every single time you hear from whichever home secretary says it your kind of heart sinks because you think well it's a good idea but it's probably not going to work and it, almost now with every announcement that that comes out of the home office there's a kind of proviso that goes well you know this morning we've got a piece of the time saying well you know if we manage to solve the Albanian problem there's loads and loads of other people who want to come from loads and loads of other countries all of that's true so it seems to me that what they need to do with immigration is make Britain less attractive as a destination to not you know encourage people to disencourage people to come here because until that happens they'll continue to come well, it's the tyranny of human rights legislation, I'm afraid, mm. and, and a lot too many people in the Home Office are enthralled to that. I mean, what I find most dispiriting is the fact that we're in a situation where uh, they're not even starting the Rwanda flight seriously because they say, well, there might be an appeal by human rights lawyers. Well, you know, that just isn't good enough. You're the government. Do what the government should be doing, mm. uh, following through its manifesto commitments, because Brexit will be meaningless if we can't really control our borders. Yeah. And just coming back to the issue of Albanians, I think it's right to say that both the Germans and the Swedes have said Albania is an advanced democracy. It's not at war. Uh, it's not an unsafe country. We will not accept, period, we will not accept Albanians as asylum seekers. Mm. Now, why can't we do that? Because we know that Albanians are responsible per capita for a significant amount of crime in our urban areas, particularly in relation to drugs. Why we're allowing lots of Albanian young men claiming asylum into this country, I do not know. And I, I think people will find that 
perplexing and, and it, it will make a lot of people quite angry. Yes. No, I think that's absolutely right. And we'll get to the NHS in a moment as well, Stuart, but good to talk to you. Stay where you are. We're going to take a little short break. And we're talking to Lord Jackson of Peterborough, the uh, House of Lords peer, former MP, of course, as well. Uh, very much a Brexiteer right at the heart of Brexit when we were doing it every single day, day in, day out, down on Westminster uh, College Green. Of course, you might remember all those years ago when there was a stalemate, when there was nobody who could take Brexit over the line. And that was before Boris Johnson did the deed. We'll be back with Stuart Jackson next on Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Stuart Jackson, Lord Jackson of Peterborough. Let's talk about the NHS because, of course, uh, one of the other problems, which has been going on now for so long, uh, it's impossible to remember where it all started. The Mirror this morning, as you might expect, Stuart, has got... Um, they blame COVID, they blame flu, they blame OAPs, they blame GPs, they blame nurses. But we all know it's 13 years of this lot with pictures of David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. They broke our NHS. I don't think that's entirely fair, but I mean, it's also not entirely unfair, I suppose, because the Tories have been in charge for a very long time. The NHS has got worse. The thing that most people never mention is the population growth since 12 years ago. Uh, in which we've now found ourselves with something like, what, another 5 to 10 million people extra um, using the NHS. Exactly. And, of course, the uh, Daily Mirror is very much in favour of recycling because they recycle the same uh, front page headline <laughs> every year. Uh, in fact, every month. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's every, I always say, how do you know it's October? Because the NHS is facing its worst ever winter crisis. Yeah, you know, according to according to the mirror, um, but the serious point is that you're quite right. There's a been a, there is a demographic time bomb, a combination of fewer people working relative to older people. Um, many of us of my age group, we we're, we're sort of in a demographic sandwich between bringing up young people, trying to get them into university, and looking after our elderly parents. And we didn't have that situation. 30 years ago, because we had a much lower life expectancy. Uh, and the problem of social care integrating with uh, acute care and primary care is very, very difficult. It's not a question of money. The Conservative Party has committed to and spent huge amounts of public money, record levels of, um, of public expenditure. It's a question of how we organise the NHS mm. in a situation where there is big demographic change. And I think any political party elected at the next general election has got to look at the funding model of the NHS. Provided we all agree on treating people at the, at the front end where they need it, there has to be a, at least an analysis of other forms of funding. Because otherwise, as someone famously said not that long ago, we're soon going to have an NHS with an economy attached mm. rather than a, yeah. an economy funding the NHS. Well, that's it. It's become, this sort of, of, it's become this un sort of manageable behemoth, hasn't it? It's so huge, it's so big, and it's now dealing with so many problems that it can't solve. And so many people living longer, so many people getting uh, sicker, I suppose, as well, as a result of their lifestyles. You know, it's not the same machine that was built back in the 1940s, is it? No, it's a wonderful machine. I mean, I, I don't agree with the deification of the NHS as a national religion. Mm. I think that's wrong because it precludes a proper, um, reasonable debate on it. No one wants to privatise the NHS. The Conservative Party would crash to a catastrophic defeat if it ever tried to do that. 
in fact, the, the biggest reforms in the in the NHS really, aside from Andrew Lansdy's rather ill-fated Health and Social Care Act of 2012, which I'm afraid I did vote for, which was very bureaucratic, was actually Tony Blair's government. Mm. He brought in the biggest introduction of private sector development in the NHS, uh, particularly in operations, for instance, but other areas, urgent treatment centres, for instance. But every government needs to look at this because unless we look at, at, say, the German model where you do have compulsory private health insurance at a modest level, mm. uh, but that will mean you get drugs on time, you get to see a GP on time, you get uh, the help of the private sector, but but you're always treated on the base of clinical need, then I think we're going to have a situation where the NHS bankrupts the country and ultimately people don't get the treatment that, that they need mm. and deserve. Yeah. Well, I find it extraordinary that nobody uh, in the NHS ever looks into their own kind of uh, cupboard, if you like, to look for why the reasons are uh, that the services are simply not there because everything from GP surgeries to dentistry uh, to cancer care to screening to the A&E departments, I mean, almost every single aspect of what the uh, NHS is meant to do just doesn't work. And they don't seem to think they're responsible for it, but they're running it. I know, and the crazy thing is, you know, imagine you were buying, I know it's not exactly the same analogy because it's not a commercial uh, decision, but you were you were buying a phone and the Apple person said to you, uh, you've got to phone 8.30 to try and get the phone with mm. 300 other people. And if you don't make an appointment to buy the phone, then you'll have to wait till tomorrow. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go back to that store. No. Well, why do we have a situation where we've got hundreds of people ringing at 8.30 in the morning, their GP surgery, and, uh, and if they ring at half past 10 or half past 11, they're told, sorry, all the slots are gone today, try mm. tomorrow. Yeah. It's incredibly inefficient and there must be a better way of doing things there must be also i liken it to hospitals um and running a restaurant service where you turn up at the restaurant and they say well, we'd rather you didn't actually order any food because it'd be better for us it'd be cheaper for us uh, and if you just come and sit down for a few minutes then you can leave and that'll be your uh, experience in our restaurant and that's what hospitals will now become you know <laughs> well i've been to some restaurants that are like that mike <laughs> Well, I mean, thankfully, probably they haven't they haven't uh, lasted too long through the through the pandemic. But we have I mean, I think we also have to grasp the nettle here that the Tory party needs to become the party of lower taxes rather than higher taxes. It needs to start encouraging the civil service to operate more efficiently. And if, and if by that it means bringing them back to work Monday to Friday as opposed to Tuesday to Thursday or not at all. You know, that all needs to be taken hold of, it seems to me. Um, but nobody's doing it. No, and it's a frightening development because even if you get a Labour government, I think what happened last autumn with the Liz Trust quasi Quateng experiment, which actually I think, broadly speaking, was true, mm. uh, it, it was correct yeah. in, in their prescriptions, but it, they didn't roll the pitch and they were too impatient and yeah. obviously it all imploded. But the lesson there is the markets crushed that government and forced Truss out. Yeah. If Dharma thinks it's going to be different under a Labour government with more tax rises, more regulation, higher public expenditure, he's got another thing coming. Because mm. if you thought that was catastrophically disorganised, and some people might say it was, you, you wait till you've got a Labour government trying to bring through those kind of uh, changes. Mm. The markets will react very, very badly. Uh, but more importantly, I think the permanent civil service, uh, you know, does need to be more accountable. I've worked with civil servants and some of them have been brilliant, but some of them uh, are not. And 
the idea that a government with a notional 80-seat majority cannot push through its policies uh, demanded a by its manifesto commitment in 2019. I think it's worrying for democracy full stop. Mm, absolutely right. And speaking of which, let's finish with just your own thoughts about um, the Palace of Westminster. You're no stranger to that part of the world, but uh, how are you finding the House of Lords and what do you make of people like Keir Starmer who's talking about maybe abolishing it? They've been trying to abolish or reform the House of Lords for a hundred years, Mike, since the uh, 1911 Parliament Act, or mm. over a hundred years. I think it didn't work under Cameron. It didn't work even under Attlee, I think, uh, Callaghan, Wilson, uh, Major. I think you do need a chamber that has the time and space to properly give a strategic oversight uh, and scrutiny of government because that way you get better laws. Now, I would say that because I'm in the Lords now. Does it need reform? Of course it needs reform. Is it too big? Quite possibly it is. But the idea that you can abolish it, which I think is what Gordon Brown is advocating, mm. is completely wrong. Yeah. You need two chambers so that the Commons cannot completely dominate in between general elections. Yeah. So I, I don't think it will go anywhere. I think that you probably will have some tinkering. But I have to agree with the Dark Lord, Lord Mandelson, who says, <laughs> look, basically... Labour have other priorities if, if or when they become the government. And House of Lords reform is certainly a second-order yes. issue. I mean, I think I'd rather see uh, Gordon Brown abolished, to be honest. Um, but that's another story altogether. And listen, good to talk to you. Uh, Brexit, uh, Lord Stuart Jackson of Peterborough, uh, the man, one of the men uh, who helped Brexit happen back in the day uh, in 2016 when that referendum uh, was the surprise result uh, of the millennium, you might say. Uh, lots more to do, lots more to talk about, of course, as well. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk about the state of crime in this country coming next with Peter Blexley. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on today. We will be taking a lot of your calls, of course. Loads of you want to talk about the NHS. We also want to talk about the problem with crime in this country as well, because, of course, uh, there's big spot stories in the papers this morning from a court case involving Mark Cavendish, the Olympic cyclist, and his wife, Petta, uh, former Page 3 model, right? Knife-wielding raiders threatened to stab Olympic cycling hero Mark Cavendish in front of his young kids, a court heard yesterday. And this was a planned attack. The people who uh, did the robbery are accused of uh, setting it up specifically to rob uh, Cavendish and his wife of some very expensive watches, some very expensive stuff that they obviously knew they had inside their home. Before we talk about the detail of that, uh, let me just read you a couple of tweets that I've got here. Rich from Dudley says this, Happy New Year, Mike. My son is a clinical coder at a hospital in Dudley. He is office and home based. Before Christmas, the trust were advertising for office-based coders. No applications were received. They changed the job role to totally home based. What a surprise. Loads of applications. One of the coders now works from home in Liverpool, working for the Dudley Trust. Blooming madness, says Rich in Dudley. And then Chris in Horsham. Sunak says the NHS has the money it needs, maybe, but it does not have the staff, the beds or the social care backup required. Sunak, stop chucking out sound bites and do something. Total wimp. Well, interesting enough. And Pete says, mathematics should be more realistic. It should cover mortgages, loans and credit card charges. Welcome to the real world. Well, I think that's a good point as well. But let's talk uh, to Peter Blexley, former Metropolitan Police detective, of course, and a man who knows a thing or two about tracking down criminals. Peter, a very good morning to you and a happy new year. Yes, and to you. Thanks very much for joining us. Horrible case, this. I mean, it proves once again um, that the robbers of this country, the uh, the armed gangs, are getting more and more ruthless, getting more and more kind of brazen, and they don't really care. You know, there was a time, I suppose, Peter, maybe uh, when, when you and I were younger, when 
if there was a robbery or a burglary, I mean, you wouldn't find people threatening to stab a man in front of his children, which is what happened here. Um, obviously a very, very uh, specifically targeted raid um, and a terrifying one. Yeah, absolutely horrific. Um, what Mark Cavendish, his wife and his family went through, one can only take a guess at, mm. but it was, of course, appalling. Yeah. And these thieves, apparently, so the court was told yesterday, were carried out this targeted attack with a view to trying to steal some astonishingly expensive watches mm. that were in the home. And sadly, once again, like we've heard with stories of footballers having their homes targeted and many other celebrities and the like, but this applies to all of us equally. Because the police have surrendered patrolling the streets, there is now a huge obligation upon us all to protect ourselves. And that means that we have to go to the expense of CCTV, alarms, reinforced doors and door frames and all manner of things to try and ensure that these unscrupulous people can't steal what we've all worked so hard for. Well, exactly right. Because, I mean, I've met people now in London who now simply won't go out wearing the watch that they've bought. You know, I'm not one of those people that has an expensive watch. I don't think it's worth having one, to be honest, but that's just my choice. But if you do choose to buy one, you should be able to walk around the streets of the capital city of this country without fear of it being nicked. But it spreads far wider than that. We heard only last week of Rolex robbers, as they were called, yeah. teams of women who were attacking elderly men, when I say elderly, men in their 70s, mm. um, as they came out of the golf club or a supermarket uh, with distraction techniques, then grabbing them and removing their expensive watches mm. like Rolexes and other premium brands. Um, so this thieving spreads far and wide, unfortunately. And whilst, like yourself, I wear a particularly inexpensive watch, it is a shame, a crying shame, that people who have been successful in whatever their chosen field was, mm. that have got themselves enough money so that they can invest in an expensive timepiece, now feel fearful of taking it out onto the streets of Britain, or, as this case shows with Mark Cavendish and his wife, keeping them within their own home. Mm. I mean, I always remember my father telling me when I was a kid that, you know, one day people will become so brazen the criminal fraternity he was talking about, that they'll just literally come into parts of the city which are reasonably well-off and just start taking what they want because the police were already in those days beginning to kind of be seen less and less. And I, without wanting to blame the police for this horrible crime, you know, there must be a factor involved that they're not fearful of the police. Your father was a prophet and sadly his words in many areas of the UK have come true. Mm. And that is why we are now seeing security companies, for example, yeah. some of which are very good, some of which are a bit average. So if you have the means and you're thinking of hiring such a company to carry out private patrols, one company even calls its staff bobbies, local bobbies, yeah. because they are, in many regards, fulfilling the role of what police officers used to do. Mm. And those who live or work in communities where they can afford to hire these uniformed security staff are doing just that and they are delivering astonishing results mm. where they work in commercial areas like Oxford Street and the like they are detaining pickpockets shoplifters burglars robbers and where they patrol more residential areas they are gathering the evidence because they're backed up by an investigation team and carrying out yeah. 
private prosecutions on burglars. Yes. Well, you know, it's funny because I was up in North London at the weekend uh, for, for New Year and I was actually found myself in Winnington Road, that very expensive part of sort of Hampstead and Highgate. And I saw about five individual cars which were marked up with private security kind of, uh, you know, logos and stuff like that, just sitting outside some of those big houses. So you're absolutely right to say it's going on. And whenever I go to Oxford Street now, which is not that often, you do have a sense that it's a bit lawless. You know, you, you kind of, you've got your wits about you because you're kind of worried, wondering whether somebody's going to bump into you and try and take your wallet. You know, it's a kind of wild west out there. Well, me and my family were in Oxford Street last night and my youngest boys are 21 and 20 and my wife's an ex-cop. Yeah. So you can imagine we're always on red alert in terms of personal safety, keeping ourselves safe and not becoming victims of crime. But I can understand you feeling that way. Yeah. I'm sure many other people do. And that's why these private security companies are, are blooming mm. and are putting out more and more staff, creating more and more of their beats, as they call them. Yes. And what are you hearing from your colleagues or your former colleagues in the cops now, Peter? Because, you know, we've got a new Metropolitan Police chief. We've got supposedly some you know, police um, organisations in this country under special measures, the Met being one of them. Is it going to get better? Are, are there signs that, you know, the new breed of, of, uh, of police chief uh, are at least in the ideas of, of what they're going to do? Are they going to work? Well, the new breeds of police chiefs have been brought up under the system that have got so many police services into special measures mm. and got us into this catastrophic situation whereby the police have basically lost all contact with the Robert Peel principles of yeah. policing that were laid down nearly 200 years ago and yet are as apposite and relevant to society today as they were back then. Mm. However, there is a bit of a tide turn in so much as that two notable leading police officers have said they will visit every their staff will visit every burglary that appears to be being rolled out a bit wider across the UK the police really need to refocus I think to be perfectly with Frank something I've been calling for for years and years is a royal commission yeah. into policing because policing today bears very little resemblance in some regards to the job that I did back in the 70s 80s and 90s there was no internet, no CCTV, no cybercrime, and forensics were a, a shadow of what they are today. So policing in the whole needs to be examined. Sticking blasters here and sticking blasters there are not going to give the overall kind of remedy which will drag the police back towards doing what its core function is, which is patrolling the streets, preventing crime, and when crime has been committed, investigating it and catching the perpetrators. Mm. Absolutely right. Peter, good to talk to you. As ever, Peter Blexley, former Metropolitan Police detective on the news. The court case currently going on, we'll probably hear more today, uh, of masked raiders who wore balaclavas, broke in uh, to the home of Mark Cavendish, the uh, former Olympic cyclist, uh, which he shares with his wife, Peter, uh, and uh, his children. And of course, uh, he was threatened. Uh, with a knife. They said that basically they would knife him in front of his kids. They wouldn't care uh, what he said about it, didn't care what he thought about it. They had a £300,000 watch belonging to his wife, a £400,000 watch belonging to him. Now, you might say, what on earth are people doing with those kinds of things? But you're allowed to buy expensive things if you can afford to buy them. That's not the issue. The issue here is that the robbers apparently have not a care 
about being caught. They were eventually caught, uh, but there are some of them still on the run. They were eventually caught by the police because of some DNA matches that were made uh, from his wife's phone. But what a terrifying ordeal and what a terrifying way uh, to look into the new year and to see that basically uh, if you're not safe in your own home, then where are you safe? It's as simple as that. We'll take your calls on that as well. 0344 499 1000. How about this from Jackie, who says, Mike, I've got a novel idea. Why don't we reserve appointments for those that need to be seen on the day and others book in for scheduled appointments in the future at any time in the day? Well, in theory, that sounds fine, doesn't it, for GP surgeries. But of course, what would end up happening is that people would just book up for the rest of the week and then suddenly you'd find... There are no more appointments available that day. You just can't do it. And then tomorrow, sorry, they're already booked up. What about the day after? No, already booked up. The system, as it's run, doesn't seem to work in any way, shape or form. And it has to be, in the end, surely, the fault of the people running the system, doesn't it? This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Mike says, um, Tony in Barrow, in Furness. My cancer consultant secretary only works in St. James Hospital on a Monday and a Friday. She works from home on Tuesday and Wednesday and not at all on a Thursday, which is annoying for cancer patients like me. Well, I know, that's absolutely right. It is incredibly difficult, isn't it? Paul in Five says, um, Prime Minister Sunak walks about like a puppet out of a 1970s TV puppet show. I swear I can see the strings. A Prime Minister, never. A country can be judged by the calibre of its leadership. Maybe that explains the mess we are in. When did we last have a real leader? Well, it's quite a good question, that, Paul in Five, because if you go all the way back, I don't think Theresa May was particularly good. I don't think David Cameron was particularly good. Boris Johnson was a great showman, but as a leader, he was a little lacking in uh, uh, in perspicacity, you'd have to say. He made a few judgment calls which weren't exactly great. Um, Liz Truss, it's not even worth mentioning because it's a long time since uh, uh, she had a very short time in the Prime Minister's office. And I suppose you'd have to... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. To go all the way back, I'm afraid, and many of you will hate this for me saying it, Tony Blair was a great leader. Well, you might not have liked what he did, but he was a pretty good leader. We are now finding ourselves, however, in a place where nothing really works terribly well. Uh, we've got problems coming uh, from every single side, from every single angle. We know that over the Christmas period, thanks to the rail strikes, people didn't spend as much money, didn't go out as much as they were supposed to. Let's talk now to Mike Kill, the CEO of Nighttime Industries, because um, 20% of festive trade was lost, with over 50% of businesses fighting for survival uh, over the course of the last year or so. Um, nightclubs not doing as much business as they used to. Let's find out what's going on. Mike, a very good uh, morning to you. Happy New Year. Uh, happy New Year to you, Mike. Thank yes. you. Yes, I mean, we say Happy New Year because we hope it will be. Um, you guys hoped it would have been a good Christmas, but probably wasn't as good as you, you would have wanted it to be. Um, how actually was it for you? Uh, it was hugely challenging, the whole festive period. Normally what would happen is we call it the golden quarter, which is from Halloween all the way through to the end of the year. Right time where we make money to build up our cash reserves to survive the early part of 2023 as it is this year and you know we found that the rail strikes cost inflation less less disposable income 
has really impacted. But we saw a 20% downturn in overall trade, and we lost about 16% on New Year's Eve, which is obviously the main event of, of 2023 for us. So hugely challenging. And there's huge concerns that over 50% of businesses haven't built up that cash reserve mm. required to see them through. Because the, uh, it's the uncertainty more than anything else that, that worries people, isn't it? I mean, I, I speak to people in restaurants and, and nightclubs all the time and they say it's not so much that, you know, they know for sure that there's not going to be many people coming. They just don't know. So you don't know how many people to hire to, to put on staff for the night. You don't know how much stock to buy. You don't know how much, you know, uh, food to get in, all of that. And it makes life a very difficult and uncertain place, isn't it? A uh, huge uncertainty hits us during the pandemic. And again, this is an even bigger crisis for many uh, is hitting us in January and February. We we don't know what the energy relief scheme is going to look like. That's been pushed back. We're hearing in the press that that's going to be halved. Uh, we don't know what the March budget is going it, to. It's extremely difficult to plan, you know, both staffing, financially. Uh, we're, in a, we're in a very, very difficult situation. And, and as you can appreciate, things like rent and VAT are due in January, where, where everyone is, is is concerned where they're going to get that money yeah. from um, to, to pay those bigger bills. And the cost of everything, presumably, is going up as well, right? Well, we've seen a 40% increase in cost. Um, so as you can appreciate where you see a 20% downturn in, in the December or festive period and you see the 40% increase in cost, those 40% increases don't go away in January and February. So, you know, we've got to be quite astute and decide what's going to make us money and what mm. isn't it. You know, as we quite clearly highlighted, over 50% of those businesses are in a position where they haven't made that cash reserve position to see them through the early part of this year. And and that's that's going to be, you know, catastrophic for many. And and some are going to have to make that, that penultimate decision on whether they are going to be able to trade on or what they're going to do with their business moving forward. Mm. And has the fact that many people are no longer going into cities as much as they were, albeit, you know, for work purposes rather than for sort of pleasure purposes, is that having an effect as well? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, as you can appreciate, uh, leading up to the sort of early December period, we, um, you know, when we'd expect to see people going out for Christmas lunches, you know, because of the rail strikes, that was, uh, you know, much of the business sort of party element of this was mm. lost for restaurants and pubs. Um, and similarly, you know, we're, we're seeing a similar situation where people can't get in with rail strikes. Um, with regard to working environments where they would normally go for a a, uh, a pub lunch or a, a meeting within a pub, mm. which we encouraged wholeheartedly throughout, that that's not going to happen either because mm. we're back to the pandemic days where people are working from home, sadly. And that, that creates huge challenges, particularly for some of the bigger towns and cities right. across the country. And do you think that'll ever come back or do you think it's sort of lost forever? I think the challenge that we have is when these businesses are gone, they're gone. And, um, you know, we, we have things like permitted rights development where landlords can convert these these spaces quite readily because of legislation from government. So we, we've got some huge challenges ahead. We need to protect the, the local pub, the nightclub, um, the venues that, you know, deliver, you know, amazing cultural uh, experiences for mm. people. I think I, I think the one thing that we, we really underestimate is how important they are for social physical and mental well-being for people being able to get out and let loose and socialize and dance and and listen to music yeah. is a really important part that, that that it plays within communities and is 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 understated by government in many respects sure. and if you could get a message to jeremy hunt the chancellor or to rishi sunak prime minister what would it be 
sit down with the industry, listen to what they have to say, take it in wholeheartedly and do something about it. Listen to things like, you know, the void that's going to be created by the current situation in terms of a taxation back to HMT. Because while we talk about voids and how we pay for it, how are you going to fill that void? It needs to come out in March with a robust um, uh, budget that's going to support our industry and he needs to make sure that we understand exactly what's going to happen with the energy bills so that we can plan effectively because at the moment the uncertainty is going to kill a sector yeah. wholeheartedly absolutely mike good to talk to you thanks very much indeed mike kill there from the uh, nighttime industries association he's the ceo um, it's an important business and it's an important sector in this country and it must be protected it has to be because otherwise, as you hear uh, there from Mike, you know, you're going to end up with a place where nobody gets to do anything fun because it's all been shut down, like ghost town. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid talk. I'll talk. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the place to be uh, for all the things that you need to see. Uh, I can come up with all sorts of rhymes like that, just at random. Uh, but that was one off the cuff. Coming up in this hour, Gavin Mortimer is going to join us. He's a writer for The Spectator. He's based over in France, of course. We're going to talk to him about the story on the front page of The Times this morning, in which it says that an infinite number of other migrants are ready to replace the Albanians. This is probably the least surprising news of the day. Uh, it comes from a number of ministers who are basically saying, look, it may well be that we can solve the crisis uh, with a lot of Albanian people coming here uh, illegally when they, didn't, when they didn't need to do so when they needn't do so uh, because of course in Germany and Sweden uh, nobody is accepted from Albania when they try and come as asylum seekers because as far as the Germans and the Swedes are concerned Albania uh, is a practically an EU nation state it is a member of NATO it is a safe country it is a place from which you can apply to come legally so there's absolutely no reason why you should be coming on a small boat but of course uh, the conclusion is now uh, that at the end of the day and there's 44 new migrants have come into this country already uh, and it's only the second or third of January. Uh, in the end, the basic principle here uh, is that, of course, there are loads of migrants that want to come to Britain because Britain is a very attractive proposition. And rather like I've been saying for a long time, the only way to stop it from happening is to make Britain a less attractive uh, proposition, a less attractive place to come, a less attractive place to stay and a less attractive uh, and less welcoming place uh, to come and live. That is the point. Robin West Sussex says, some info for Marie who needs to check her blood pressure before her open heart surgery. She should be able to get a home blood pressure kit from her local surgery. She can then take her own blood pressure over a few days to see how it is and record it. Blood pressure isn't static and important to take several tests over a period of days and several times during a day. May have to put a deposit down. I paid 30 quid, which I got back when I returned the kit. I hope this is helpful. Well, Robin is helpful, but we shouldn't really be living, should we, in a country where you have to do your own medical treatment, where you have to do your own kind of surgery, where you have to do your own blood pressure testing. That's not what we pay the NHS for. We pay the NHS for doing that kind of thing and exactly that kind of thing. And that is the point. Surely, for heaven's sake, if the amount of money the, uh, the government has given the NHS cannot allow them to actually give you a blood pressure test, I think we are in a very bad place. Shirley says this, I was a theatre nurse and don't understand how things are left in a body cavity. Instruments and swabs are counted before during and after the surgery. 
Well, maybe they're getting left there deliberately. Who can say? But we're going to be running a piece a little bit later on to show you how nearly 300 separate incidents occurred in the past year or so inside the NHS where people were operated on, um, sewn back up again after the, uh, the bodies were opened up for surgery, uh, but sewed back up again with various implements left inside. Incredible. Rathak says, I might, with regards to the crime surge in London, I suggest you get Sadiq Khan on your show to answer all these issues. I believe he's getting all of his priorities wrong. Well, he certainly is. Not least because he doesn't come on this show. He never does. We've asked him about 30 times. I don't think it's ever going to happen. But anyway, meanwhile, let's talk to Gavin Mortimer uh, over in France. He's with The Spectator, of course. Gavin, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Happy New Year. Bon année, as they say in France, Mike. Yes, indeed. Uh, bon année, quite. Uh, before we, we go anywhere, actually, how are things in France? Because we've got uh, uh, the Chinese variant, which has rather hilariously been nicknamed the Kraken here, uh, which obviously is designed to frighten the hell out of anybody who remembers the Kraken Wakes or whatever the hell the name of that yeah. thing was, or something to do with Doctor Who. Um, and we're apparently going to start testing people coming from China. We're going to ask airlines to test them before they get on the plane. We're going to test them when they get here, but only if they agree. Um, and if they do test positive, we're not going to tell them to do anything at all. So there's a sort of what I could describe as a mild kind of fervour for more COVID restrictions here going on amongst the kind of the more nutty anti-COVID brigade. But what's it like there? Yeah, we had that before Christmas. Um, Macron appeared in one press conference wearing a mask and uh, as does his Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne. And uh, this was the beginning of December and it was talk of a ninth wave. And uh, and then that sort of petered out, as they often do, Mike. Yeah. The wave never quite, uh, it's like a little uh, ripple. Um, and since over Christmas, actually, it was mercifully calm. And mm. I was down in the south of France in the Pyrenees. I got the train down from Paris and the fast, very few masks on show, which gladdened my heart. So, mm. um, but there is, I think, in France and in Europe in general, Mike, there's a recognition that uh, they got it completely wrong three years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was indecisive, weak, um, too late. We knew what was coming from China and uh there's an, there's an unwillingness to take the tough decisions vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese travellers. And so I think there's a greater urgency this time because, the, you know, the French, as a report I saw earlier this week, Mike, saying that um, it's predicted that as much as 9% of French small businesses could go under this year, um, primarily because of the repercussions of COVID. Mm. And so France is in, a, is in, is in the same precarious um even disastrous state is the UK. So what they don't want is any sort of COVID return um, to, to further damage the economy. Yeah, well, that's good to hear because an awful lot of that was driven, of course, by the European Union, wasn't it? And the EU, um, who were not very cooperative with other countries. I always remember uh, the first thing that happened when um, the first COVID outbreak was kind of spotted in North Italy. Um, everybody basically ran for the border and then suddenly all the borders started getting shut. And it was like, hang on a minute, I thought you we were all in this together. I thought this was the European yeah. Union. But no, the Germans shut their border, the Austrians shut their border, and the, the Italians, if they hadn't got out, couldn't. Oh, it was rats fighting in a sack. They were yeah. fighting over um, masks and paracetamol and everything. And even, you know, well into COVID, 2021, Germany closed the border uh, with France because of an outbreak in eastern France. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, as you say, so much. It always makes me laugh when you get the more... Um, one-eyed Remainers banging on about how wonderful Europe is and the yeah. solidarity. You want to live here and see how uh, <laughs> how unified it is when uh, 
when the uh, muck hits the fan. Yeah, well, I seem to remember when uh, the EU and Macron separately, I think, and together, tried to, one, stop the vaccines from being exported to Britain because we'd ordered them ahead of them. And another time when I think Macron wanted to send in some inspectors, in quotes, uh, to see what was going on. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's There, there was no... There was no solidarity um, either towards Britain or within the EU. Mm. Uh, and I think even now there's been criticism in the French papers of, of a lack of um, decision making and, and the lack of a unified response to this uh, the news that China's opening up. You know, do we on mass um, impose restrictions? Is it going to be to every country? And Macron, to his credit, is saying, listen, this time we've got to act as one. Yes. Oh, well, that is refreshing to hear as well that there's no kind of thirst for any more COVID restrictions as well, because, I mean, the worry here is that we've got so many sort of precious types who will listen to the scientists and we've got so many of these, you know, sort of mask maniacs who are now already suggesting that, well, if you're not feeling very well, you shouldn't go out. Um, and if you are suffering from anything at all, you should put a mask on. And, I mean, it's it's kind of, you can see where it's going. You know what I mean? It has that kind of... And a sort of inexorable creep, mission creep thing about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it, it does it, as I said, it, 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 I'm very pleased and, and, uh, and I would say proud of the of, of Parisians when I was in the metro yesterday. And you, you hear these announcements saying um, it's strongly recommended that you wear a mask right. and you look about it. And, uh, and yeah, I'd say probably 90% of people are. And you get your 10% of neurotics who've been waiting for masks the whole of their lives and uh but most normal people just say we've had enough of it we we you know this is it mike we know we can weigh up the risks it's the yeah. same um with masks with booster jabs we've seen the uh the stats we've we've weighed up the risks but the politicians think that the people are stupid and can't do anything mm. can't make any decisions for themselves no no it's the other way around in my opinion it's the people who are clever and the politicians who are stupid and in this case in the case of covid we, we've accepted the risks and, and we want to just carry on with our lives as they used to be pre-covid well exactly but also whenever these conversations take place there's always talk of how well it will help a little bit if you do that you know why wouldn't you wear one because you know it can't do any harm and can only stop things from getting worse and but they never discuss the fact that actually you know the, the, the psychological damage uh, particularly done to young people or you know the difficulty that you might have in breathing uh, or the dip or the downside of actually catching um, more germs on the front of the mask than, than anything that's never talked about no, and, and nor is the fact, Mike, that let's not forget again, three years ago, um, we had many, many medical um, experts saying that masks actually didn't, at the time, when, which was what, March 2020, masks don't really make mm. a, a difference, only the, the surgical ones that you get in hospitals yeah. are effective. And, uh, um, and yet then it just sort of that went out the window and we were told to wear masks. And, uh, and the same in France. One... One thing that uh, I found really hard in France was that they were mandatory outside, even though you had epidemiologists yeah. saying, wearing, you're not going to catch COVID on the pavement. Right. Um, and yet the politicians still, Macron still imposed them. And that was so depressing about COVID that these, these, you know, these sheep just wore masks outside, even though they knew they were. Yeah. It, was a, it was a comfort blanket. And um, it's, 
time we threw off the comfort blanket never to pick it up again. Yes, no, I couldn't agree more. And that dreadful situation in Germany where we were being told that the Germans had got it right and we'd got it wrong because they wore masks more cleverly than we did and they were urging all people to wear these kind of surgical masks so you looked, you know, like some kind of maniac. Um, and it turned out that that didn't make any difference. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. No, none of it None of it did. As, as you know, that, that brave band of uh, epidemiologists and scientists right back at the beginning in 2020 told us and... Uh, you know, you and I and uh, and a minority of people listened to them, but the majority just went along with this with the scaremongering from the uh, from the various governments. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, a couple of mad stories here to to, to pique your interest. One from uh, a bloke who does some work with Radio Five Live, who's apparently uh, of Sri Lankan uh, extraction heritage, has said that um, you know he goes to the Peak District, he doesn't see very many brown. Uh, faces there and he says it's because the British countryside is considered to be white and middle class. I think it's a lot of old cobblers. Well, interesting. I mean, I read that. Um, your producer sent me the link to that article and I read it and in fairness to the presenter, what he actually, he had a great time. He said I was I was made to feel welcome but what he, the point he was making was it was the, the perception that he'd been fed that um, the, the countryside was... Um, white and unwelcoming to people who weren't white and, and in fact i remember very well in i think it was 2019 the chief executive of a lake district um i remember uh, this yeah oh yeah he said that um uh he said that uh, i think to quote we were that the lake district was deficient in young people black and ethnic communities and those who were less able um in terms of mobility yeah. which you, the last point you can only laugh at if you're if you're Struggling with mobility, it may not be the place for you to climb up a, a large peak in the in the Lake District. <laughs> but this is what you know. It's it's a matter of choice, isn't it? It's 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 a free country. Yeah. And um, this is what's so absurd. And and yet, but what by saying things like that, the man who made those comments, Richard Leaf, um, by, by making those comments, you do deter people from um, perhaps who are who are. Or, uh, you know, they're, they're unfamiliar with, with, the, with the countryside. And it's always a little bit uh, challenging to go into a new environment. But by making those um, comments with, with based on no hard evidence, just his own perception, you do create a feeling of, of intimidation. Yeah. So good to, I think, uh, in the whole with uh, the chap, the presenter um, who went to the countryside and found he loved it. And, and again, Mike, this is it. It's woke propaganda that likes to portray. Yeah, but he doesn't. But, but again, he, you know, he doesn't say where he got that impression from. Maybe it was from the guy who was in the Lake District who was giving that impression. But you know, nobody sensible would ever give that impression because no. why would you? You know, it's, no, it's and, completely irrelevant. You know, it's like it going. Irrelevant. You know, it's like going to the zoo and saying, you know, I didn't see any tigers. Well, maybe there aren't any tigers there today. I don't know. Maybe the tigers have been given a day off. You don't go around yeah. telling everybody that if you go to a zoo, you won't see any tigers. That's the impression I got. No, he. I mean, he said he. Uh, I mean, he said that he'd he'd seen these these comments about it being unwelcoming. I think social media trolls. He said, but these are these social media trolls are the are these the anti-British brigade who love to run yeah, down yeah. the country. Well, maybe yeah. Maybe get off social media and, and yeah, go, exactly. Go to the Lake and District just, once in a while. Oh, which is what he did, and he had a great time. So hopefully, <laughs> you know, this will encourage other people who. who who don't normally go to the countryside to, to go there and, and like him you can have a great time i was down in the pyrenees actually uh, 
Mike, last week. Mm. Went some hiking. I'm a bit of a hiker. I've been at the Lake District many times. And there's a camaraderie whenever you go, go on these trails, regardless of where you're from, your sex, your age, right. your ethnicity, you, there's a camaraderie there, which makes it so enjoyable. So I, I urge everyone, whatever your background, to get out, get out, do some exercise and you'll have a great time. Yeah, absolutely right. Gavin, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Gavin Morsmer there making perfect sense, as ever, uh, about some of the nonsense that gets talked about, uh, whatever it is that is going on uh, right, left and centre, where people are looking for reasons to be disappointed, reasons to not like something, reasons to not go somewhere. Well, you don't need any of that when you listen to this show. And you certainly don't need any of that when you watch talk TV. Lucy says, My mum was trying to see a doctor for over six weeks. She got to see a nurse who blamed her symptoms on something else. She's now in hospital after we took her to A&E last Wednesday with thick blood, low blood pressure, leaky heart valve, and is now having her gallbladder removed. Well, coming up, we're going to tell you about some of the things that were not only removed, but were actually left inside people's bodies after they'd had surgery on the NHS. This is talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots to tell, lots more to do between now and one o'clock. Of course, Christo will be here at one, uh, filling in for Ian Collins, Vanessa Feltz from four, Jeremy Carl live, coming up at seven o'clock tonight. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan makes an appearance there. Uh, I'll be back, of course, uh, after Richard Tice and Isabel Oakshot take place with Piers Morgan Uncensored, filling in for Piers. Uh, I'll be on the talk from nine o'clock uh, with the return of Sharon Osbourne, who made it last night, of course, for the first time in quite a while. Uh, and quite Quite a big uh, uh, splash she made as well. How about this from Jackie? Mike, objects being left in bodies occurred frequently when I worked for the NHS. It is incompetence from theatre nurses who are supposed to count instruments and swabs so nothing gets left in a patient. There is no excuse for this. Um, it's absolutely right. I mean, how on earth can you be, uh, in all honesty and in all sort of seriousness, um, a theatre nurse or a theatre doctor inside an operating theatre in a hospital in the United Kingdom in what can be described rather laughingly as the uh, best health service in the entire world and you sew somebody up with a pair of scissors inside them. How on earth does that happen? You can't explain it, can you? 0344 a 499 uh, Let's have a talk to Austin Williams now, who's founder of the Future Cities Project, author of China's Urban Revolution, because China uh, very much in the news this week for all sorts of reasons. Of course, one uh, we've heard now from many countries, including our own, uh, that testing will be required for any Chinese citizen flying into the UK from China. They'll need to take a test before they board the plane. If they test positive, there's a pretty good chance they won't get on the plane. Uh, if they get here, they're also supposed to take a test, but it's not mandatory. A lot of people are being uh, rather critical of the way that Britain is kind of dealing with this because it doesn't look as though we're taking it terribly seriously. Uh, but China's now threatening retaliation uh, over the testing rules for travellers. Um, and it's all being put down really to a lack of a decent vaccine in China. And also uh, the COVID policy they had, uh, which was a zero COVID policy to try and stop anybody uh, from actually getting the disease and the virus by locking people away. Austin, a very good afternoon to you. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Mike. Um, what do you make, first of all, of the reaction of the world? Because it is a bit strange, it seems to me, that um, you know, you're going to say to people uh, who are coming to a country where a large number of, of our own citizens, and certainly in the United States as well, are, of people are vaccinated, um, the COVID sort of, um, uh, shall we say, the, the, sort of the, the particular version of it that we're going to get is a version of Omicron, we think, which isn't that dangerous. Um, is there any point to testing people? 
Uh, well, I don't think so. I mean, I think that um, there's two things, isn't there? One is that you've got a situation in China where we've been critical of the lockdown in China because of its idiocy yeah. and its uh, a continuation. Uh, with, and, and as it shows, the lockdown actually served no benefit because mm. as soon as they came out, they had no natural immunity anyway, and right. so they all caught COVID. Um, but so you have one situation where the Chinese people of all the countries in the world, China, the authoritarian one-party state, was the one where popular protest got rid of COVID lockdown. Incredible, isn't it? Uh, it it's astounding. Uh, and something to be celebrated. So that that longing for kind of freedom or to re-engage in the in civil society is now being looked upon by the West as something which is something to be fearful of. So yeah. you know the idea that we should maybe not celebrate that, and maybe China's got a point in maybe uh, restricting them or locking them up a little bit further. And if they don't do it, then obviously we're going to introduce kind of a, a track and trace system. You know, we'll monitor them when they get on the airplane. In some respects, Britain is saying we're not going to monitor them when they get off the airplane. Right. That's why people are now kind of critical of it. But it's, what what does that what does that mean? I mean, maybe we monitor them when they get off the plane, but if they then have a, uh, a, a you know, it, it takes a couple of days maybe to take mm. effect, and maybe we maybe we follow them. This is, um, I mean, China would be delighted by this strategy <laughs> of monitoring and following people down the street to see if they're ill yes. uh, or if they're doing anything nefarious. So, I mean, I, I'm I'm with Chinese people on this one. That I do think that they've managed to achieve something. It took them a long time, uh, but good on them uh, for for um, seeing freedom as uh, in advance of you know mask wearing and social distancing and lockdowns. So, yes, and know. isn't it a bit ironic that as they do that, uh, we're kind of now having another conversation about whether we should wear masks, which is even more ironic. Yeah, well, especially since, you know, I went to China in 2010, 2011, and it was remarkable that, you know, you'd see my students be walking down the street wearing masks because it was a common thing. Mm. And it was laughable. And it was one of those things in the West where you'd look at China and say, what the hell are they doing walking around with yeah. masks on for no apparent reason? It was partly because they were paranoid about, you know, previous uh, uh, infections, yes. partly because of pollution rates. But, you know, we didn't do it. They did it because they were authoritarian and daft uh, and we were liberal and sensible. Uh, but obviously the whole tables have been turned, it would seem. So the, the idea now is that there are lots of people, I'm sure, in this country who've longed for mask wearing um, or social distancing or re want to recreate the, the lockdown situation. Obviously, Susan Mitchie, all those kind of people in independent stage, remember her, the old kind of Maoist. Sadly. Uh, uh, Hasn't she gone off to work for the World Health Organization? Uh, yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Another Chinese uh, organization. But, you know, Neil Ferguson, the man who kind of saw China as the model. So it's kind of ironic that, you know, there was that I, that beginning of the of the COVID where we saw or certain people kind of looked to China and said, you know, we didn't think we could lock people down. But then we saw China was doing it and we realized it was possible, as Neil Ferguson once said. Mm. Um, but we, you know, we, we we fought against that. I think kind of liberal minded, sensible people who praise liberty and respect individual autonomy uh, argued against them. Unfortunately, they now seem to be coming back as if three years hasn't happened. Mm. Uh, that, you know, we're now talking in terms of like 2020 conversations rather than 2023. Yeah. We've had COVID. Most of us have been vaccinated. If we haven't, we've got um, you know, antibodies because we've been uh, we've caught it. Right. So we're pretty well protected, I would say. And the COVID in China, for all this rhetoric about the Kraken and this new devil disease, uh, in fact, it's a milder variant right. uh, because you know it's dissipated over time. So, you know, well, China has a problem. Right well, China I mean, has a real problem. Yeah, I mean, I find it astonishing the number of people that you hear talking about how, well, of course, you know, it doesn't do any harm. Just wear a mask. It's good for the society that we live in. It's good to protect the NHS. I mean, all this absolute and utter nonsense, which is, which is sort of rattled off as if it's actual scientific fact, when, of course, it isn't. It's all about this kind of, you know, rather obscure 
um, mentality that some people in this country seem to have adopted that, you know, uh, it's better to be safe than sorry. Well, it isn't, yeah. actually. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the uh, logical lockdown, isn't it? Better to be safe, shut yourself away, never yeah. meet anybody, talk to anybody. But as China has showed, lockdown did nothing. As a matter of fact, it was made worse by the very lockdown that was meant to protect mm. people. Not only was it, you know, people coming out being more prone to, uh, to to the disease, but obviously over the course of lockdown, whether in China or in this country, but China more graphically than anywhere else, you know, people dying, people committing suicide. I mean, the, the, the there will be an untold story, hopefully written at some point in the future, to, to reveal what the real story has yeah. been, whether in the West or in or in uh, China. Well, I mean, we hear it every day here on Talk TV. I get messages from all sorts of people. Whenever we talk about the NHS, we had one today uh, about a guy whose father died in December. Uh, he couldn't get an appointment to see the NHS last year. And by the time he did get the appointment, they told him it was too late for him, for him to get treatment. I've spoken to many people who have said that they're now in stage four cancer. Uh, and they've been told by the doctors, well, if you could only have come to see us two years ago, we might have been able to help you. But now we can't because they didn't see them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, China doesn't really have a national health service. I mean, it has. Urban... Neither do we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but the, the fact is that um, China has hospitals in main urban centers. Mm. Uh, but if you're in a, if, I mean, main urban centre, maybe 25, 30 million people. Yes. So if you haven't got a car and you don't have cars uh, or taxis in yeah. lockdown, you can't get to the hospital. But in rural areas, I mean, this is really significant what's happening in China. So you know, the, in, in a couple of weeks time, it's the spring festival where lots of people are going to travel back from urban areas, back to the villages. The villages are full of old people because all the young people have left to find jobs on mm. the eastern seaboard. So there will be, you know, the, 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 it's, a, it's a real problem in China. Uh, that's to be said. But, but obviously, that's the font of the Chinese system and the Chinese state, which A, refused to uh, organize vaccination. B, had a crap vaccination program yeah. when they did use it. Right. Uh, and, and C, has kind of really ignored the plight of problems, thinking that the uh, thinking that lockdown would solve all the, mm. uh, the problems for them. Yeah. So, you know, there is a growing situation in China, which we need to be mindful of. But I mean, China is a massive country. Uh, you know, I was just reading recently that 10 million people die every year yes. in China anyway. Right. Right. I mean, uh, and, and old and infirm people in China are a very large percentage of the demographics over there. Yes. So there will be a kind of a slight kind of a distortion of the statistics anyway. But it's, it's a problem for them. No, of course. Similar to when we were doing our sort of daily death numbers in this country. And it turned out that actually um, sometimes on various days and on various periods of time, it was fewer people dying of COVID than were dying of everything else anyway. And it wasn't until we started looking into those figures that you suddenly realised what the scale of it all was. And that's why I find it incredible that anybody would ever consider going back into any sort of mentality of mask wearing and, you know, hiding out in the house because it didn't, none of it worked. Exactly. But I mean, the statistical thing, remember we had, um, remember the days when we used to think back and say, why don't they tell us how many people died of COVID yes, rather than I with do. COVID? We still but say now, We now still say it, yeah. But China, funnily enough, uh, I mean, for their own purposes, admittedly, but they have they have changed the way that they calculate COVID deaths mm. to be with COVID, uh, sorry, of COVID, not right. with COVID. So if, if it's a pulmonary or, a, you know, a respiratory, severe respiratory disease that you die of and you have COVID, then they will count it. If you fall down and you have a, you know, you crack your skull and you die in hospital, but you catch COVID, they don't count it. Now, there's lots of people in the West 
uh, all those kind of medics who were kind of part of the SAGE franchise, mm. who are now saying, how dare China change the statistical analysis and give us false data? Whereas, in fact, in some respects, they're giving us truer data than, uh, than we had over here. Right. Absolutely right. Austin, good to talk to you. Some common sense as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Austin Williams, founder of Future Cities Project, author of China's Urban Revolution. They're talking about uh, how the Chinese have kind of bizarrely become world leaders uh, in actually citizen-led um, you know, opposition to government policy. Who knew? This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.